Good morning, everyone. This morning, I want to tell you about Doritos, the book of Ezra, and the sovereignty of God. Let's start with the Doritos. I was, uh, whenever, whatever age you are, when your adult teeth come in, my front two adult teeth came in with a permanent bright orange, brilliant edge stripe right across the front two teeth. I do not have to wonder what that looked like to other people because every day, if I smiled or laughed or said something, uh, someone would say, I think you've been eating some nacho cheese Doritos and they're still stuck on there. So friends of mine, if I opened my mouth, would give me a polite little scraping motion. And uh, strangers would go, I I'm sorry. And they would apologize and say, I think you've been eating some chips. And people I didn't like would just say, you know, brush your teeth every once in a while. Now, it's amazing how something small and insignificant like that, when it's repeated several times a day for several years running, can become crushing. At 17 years old, I went to a, the dentist, and he looked in there and rather brusquely said, well, that's, a, that's caused by antibiotics that came out in the 70s, and they didn't know it was going to do that. So that's, that's in there permanently. That's not a stain. That's what color your teeth are. And he said, I could, you know, I can't take that off. I could try to replace it with something. But your teeth are so many different colors, so mottled. I, I can't match it with anything I've got. I'd have to strip the fronts off of all your teeth and replace them with veneers. So I went home. There are no photographs of me that I am aware of between 17 and 24 years old. The stain is there. It's probably your parents' fault. It's written, it's done, and after 20 years, you're stuck with it. Ever gotten a message like that? We all have indelible stains. Things or situations that have gone on long enough that now we think that's just the way it is. Nothing can be done about it. Perhaps for you, it wasn't dental work. It was uh, your workplace. Maybe a career decision that was thrust upon you. A bad boss. Maybe some bad advice you got that caused you to miss an opportunity. Perhaps it just fired you unjustly or transferred you or downsized you. But whatever it was, at this rate, it's been that way so long. You're saying, that's just the way it is. The stain is on me. I'm stuck with that. Maybe it's not career. Maybe it's something spiritual for you. Maybe today you're here in church because of some interesting circumstances, but the real story about you is that you don't really have a faith to speak of at all. Your stain is that you're already too jaded, too old, too set in your ways to join a spiritual community like this and go on this journey then you're sure that everyone around you can tell that you don't know the drill, you don't know the lingo, you don't know the secret church handshake. You don't belong. That's what you're sure everyone can see when you smile stuck on the front teeth. Maybe for you it's your family, kids. No matter what age they are, they get off track sometimes, don't they? Maybe we didn't raise them how we should have. Maybe we did the best we could and it just didn't take. But now the stain is on them and the trajectory of their life is not headed in a good place and it just makes you sick with regret. 
These are the expressions we use for these situations. That the stain is set and the die is cast and that's engraved in stone and the train has left the station and the leopard can't change their spots. That's the Doritos. Now I want to tell you about the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra is a book in the Old Testament where they were saying a lot of those phrases. It covers this period in Israel's history. In 586 BC, about 500 years before the birth of Christ, uh, Babylon came and destroyed Israel. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple of God. And they hauled the people away and scattered them throughout the Babylonian Empire to weaken them so they were out of their homeland and away from each other. And that's called the exile. And that's the way the people of Jerusalem lived, scattered throughout Babylonia until... 538 BC. In 538, the Persians conquer the Babylonians. And the new king of Persia is Cyrus. And Cyrus says he has a vision from God that he is to let the people of Israel go home and rebuild their temple. They're very excited and they go home and get started. But just a couple of years later, someone writes a complaint letter to the king of Persia and he says, you know what, you're right, never mind, never mind. He shuts the project down. So they just get the foundation built, and that's it. And that project is halted for the next 20 years. And then we pick up with our uh, story today in Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. At that time, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem. They prophesied in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So... These prophets, these preachers of their day come forward, Haggai and Zechariah, and they say to the people of Israel, we came back to this land to worship our God. Permission or no permission from these Persian kings, we got to rebuild the temple to honor him. They're very inspiring. In fact, their, their teachings were kept as scripture, and there are two other books of the Old Testament called Haggai and Zechariah, where you can read about their preaching. And you may want to do that this week. Normally, those are very heavy books, but now that you know the history of what's going on, you probably will capture why they were so worked up and emotional. In fact, Zechariah is, is a little excited because the governor of the Jews, Zerubbabel, agrees with them, and he starts the temple project. And the exciting thing about Zerubbabel is if you trace his family tree, he's a descendant of King David. So Zechariah starts to think, maybe Zerubbabel is the Messiah. He's going to become our new king, free us from these people, and usher us into an era of glory. So if you read Zechariah, you'll see these little hints that maybe Zerubbabel is the, is the Messiah. So they're making good headway on the temple. You know why? Because by this time, Persia is already in civil war. So a new military general has just taken the throne named Darius, and he's so distracted with things going on in Persia that out there at the edge of the empire in Jerusalem, not able to pay attention to what they're doing. So it looks like they're going to get to finish that temple. Until verse 3. But Tatanai governor of the province west of the Euphrates River, and Shathar Bozani and their colleagues soon arrived in Jerusalem and asked, Who gave you permission to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? They also asked for the names of all the men 
working on the temple. Doggone it. Here we go again. The stain is set. Here comes another governor from the local region around them. Here goes another letter written up to the king of Persia. In fact, it's recorded in our Bible as chapters seven, or chapter 5, verse 7 through 17. We don't need to read it. We have read these letters in our study of Ezra before, and they all say the same thing. Dear king of Persia, did you know that these Jews are trying to rebuild this temple again? Did you know that throughout history they have been a naughty and rebellious people that are hard to rule? Just thought you would like to know. And if you would like somebody to stop them for you, we're willing to do it. The stain is set. The die is cast. It's engraved in stone. The train has left the station. The leopard can't change his spots. Where is God in this story? The temple, after all, only has one purpose, to worship and glorify God. And it looks as if on this attempt to rebuild it, that God is distracted somewhere, that his eye is off looking at something else in the world. I don't know if you've noticed, but since we started this study of Ezra, God doesn't seem to be doing a lot. We don't have the big miracle stories we have in other Old Testament books. At the beginning of Ezra, we had a moment where Cyrus thought he heard from God that he should let the Jews go home and rebuild their temple. And we celebrated that really big in here. We knocked over walls and clocks and put them all back up again. We had a great morning. Just a couple of years later, some people sent a complaint letter to him and he says, oh, you're right, never mind, shut them down. Where was God in that moment? Then the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, it says, were stirred up speaking for God to say, let's rebuild our temple. So you could say that was an act of God to inspire those prophets. But when this governor comes and tries to shut them down, where is the Lord? God makes his next appearance in verse 5. But because their God was watching over them, the leaders of the Jews were not prevented from building until a report was sent to Darius and he returned his decision. So this governor says, hey, we need to investigate if you have permission to do this. I need to see your building permit. And the scripture says, because God was watching over them, he didn't make them stop while he did his investigation. Okay, that's kind of a miracle. Not really what we were hoping for. But at this point in history, the Jews just don't seem to be complaining to God and complaining about God like they used to. They seem to have gotten in touch now with some other part of their story and their spiritual journey. You see, this governor asked them when he comes across the river, why are you doing this? And, and here's what they say in verse 11. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we're rebuilding the temple that was built here many years ago by a great king of Israel. But because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he abandoned them to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and exiled the people to Babylonia. We are servants of God, and we used to have a great king and a great temple. 
but we would not follow that God and we angered him and he let Babylon overthrow us and tear down our temple and cart us away. And now we're home again and we want to rebuild it. Do you hear the humility in their words? And do you hear the brokenness in their words? There was a time Israel would have answered this. We are servants of the Most High God. We've got spirit. Yes, we do. We've got spirit. How about you? Now they say, we messed up big. And we just want to try again. They've been to rock bottom and back. And now they walk with that humble limp you only get when you've been to rock bottom and back. And all their brashness and bravado, that's all spent. Now they are repentant. They confess their sin. It's because of what we did that this happened. And they're trying to rebuild a place to worship God, and that's all the strength they have to do. So the governor from across the river sends his letter to King Darius, and his letter ends this way. Therefore, if it pleases the king, we request that a search be made of the royal archives of Babylon to discover whether King Cyrus ever issued a decree to rebuild God's temple in Jerusalem. And then let the king send us his decision on this matter. And in the meantime, the Jews are allowed to keep working while they wait for Darius' reply. His reply comes in chapter 6. So King Darius issued orders that a search be made of the Babylonian archives, which were stored in the treasury. But they didn't find anything about this. Verse 2. But it was in the fortress at Ekbatana in the province of Media that the scroll was found. Little note on archaeology. Archaeologists know that Cyrus, when he first took Persia, it was such a bloody battle. He was tired, and after one year, he wanted a vacation. So he packed up and, and went to Ekbatana, the summer palace for the Persian kings. Evidently, one of the last decisions he made was about this matter, and he just took it in his chariot and threw it in a storeroom at the summer palace. The scriptures agree that's where it was found. And this is what it said. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus' reign, a decree was sent out concerning the temple of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt on the site where the Jews used to offer sacrifices, using the original foundations. Its height will be 90 feet. Its width will be 90 feet. Every three layers, especially prepared stones, will be topped by a layer of timber. All expenses will be paid by the royal treasury. Furthermore, the gold and silver cups which were taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar from the temple of God in Jerusalem must be returned to Jerusalem and put back where they belong. Let them be taken back to the temple of God. What do you know? The Jews were telling the truth. So he uh, continues his decree with these words. Do not disturb the construction of the temple of God. Let it be rebuilt on its original site. Do not hinder the governor of Judah and the elders of the Jews in their work. Moreover, I hereby decree that you are to help these elders of the Jews as they rebuild the temple of God. You must pay the full construction cost without delay from my taxes collected in the province west of the Euphrates River so that the work will not be interrupted. We have just crashed into the sovereignty of God. This governor wrote a letter to shut the temple down. The reply comes back and says, nope, they were supposed to build it. Could you help them out? In fact, I know you collected a bunch of taxes you're getting ready to send to Persia. Scratch that. Send it west to Jerusalem. 
In fact, he has a little more to say. I'd love to see the look on this governor's face while he's reading this. Uh, Give the priests of Jerusalem whatever is needed in the way of young bulls, rams, and male lambs for their burnt offerings presented to the God of heaven, and without fail, provide them with as much wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil as they need each day, and then they'll be able to offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven. And my favorite line, and pray for the welfare of the king and his sons. Here's a guy who's fighting a civil war. And he's like, you know, and his sons are probably all his military captains. And on this day, he's like, I don't need any more enemies. I need some friends. So yeah, whoever these people are at the edge of the empire, let them rebuild the temple and ask him to pray for me. God can rule through anything. Sovereignty means God's ability to control and rule in all circumstances. Even through the decrees of pagan kings, his work is done. Now, let's not get too excited. We have seen Persian kings do this before. They come out, oh yes, the Lord has spoken to me. You can rebuild the temple. I'll give you money to do it. This is all the same stuff Cyrus said. And then one complaint letter, and he shut the whole thing down. So now we have a new leader, and he's also desperate, and he's just taking the throne. And he says, oh, yes, uh, I agree. Let's rebuild the temple. Oh, help him out. Give him money. How do we know that with just one complaint letter, it's, it's not going to be shut down again? That's kind of how these guys do this. Well, evidently, Darius has noticed this pattern, too. That Cyrus said all the same stuff he just said. Build the temple. Give him Persian money. And after 20 years, it's still just a foundation. So Darius has just a few more words to add. Those who violate this decree in any way will have a beam pulled from their house. They will be tied to it and flogged. And their house will be reduced to a pile of rubble. May the God who has chosen the city of Jerusalem as the place to honor his name destroy any king or nation that violates this command and destroys this temple. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be obeyed with diligence. I guess no one's going to be messing with the temple this time. God's eye never left them. He is the sovereign king of all circumstances, in all places. So maybe that stain isn't set. I think I was 23 years old when I entered the dental offices of Huckabee and Huckabee on 40 Highway in Kansas City. You should all go there. (laughs) I was there for a filling when Dr. Sam looked in and said, oh, you have that stain that kids born in the 70s have. If you've got an extra 30 minutes, I can take that off. I'm arguing, I say, you can't take it off, that's a permanent stain, because, you know, I'm smarter than the doctor. (laughs) He said, well, I don't really take it off, I grind out the part of the teeth that are that color, I put a compound in to replace it. Now, I've had this other tape playing in my head, so I have a few more arguments on why this isn't going to happen. So I say, oh no, my teeth are so many different colors, you could never match it with your compound. And he finally goes, I I can match it. Just be quiet and put your glasses on. (laughs) 30 minutes later was the last time I ever had somebody do this to me. And the last time somebody ever said, have you been eating chips? I smile for pictures now. Big. 
I guess the stain is not set and the die is not cast and it is not engraved in stone and the train has not left the station and the leopard can change its spots because God's eye is always on us. So whatever it was that boss did to you, even if it was 20 years ago, that is not the last word to a God who can move foreign kings. And whatever uh, it was that's going on in your spiritual life, remember the God who can bring a temple out of 60-year-old ruins because in 515 B.C., it was finished. And there was the temple. So if you aren't sure you want to be an agnostic anymore, maybe it just feels empty. And you'd like to try a different path for a while. What would it be like to try a path of faith? Around here, I want to tell you, we love a faith that is fresh. And we love a faith that is new and that's exploring. We actually love a faith that makes some mistakes along the way because you didn't know any better. There is no secret handshake you have to learn to worship here. We invite you to try this journey. Just do the things we're doing for the next year. Go to the baptism tonight and hear the stories. Come back and worship next week. See what there is to see. The same goes for your kids. No matter what age they are, they are a work in progress. And if God can take a people who used to disobey him and still claim to be his favoritists in the whole world and turn them into humble servants who just want to rebuild a place to worship. He can do anything in the lives of your kids. So look at their lives and the blessings and the good things they do and encourage them. And the Lord's eye is on them. Now you may be saying, I don't see God doing that much though in my life. These stories you tell, that kind of stuff doesn't happen to me. I don't see God working in that way. You know what? That's the same thing they said until they put that last stone into that temple. And you may be saying, yes, but my stains are my fault. My ruins are my fault. All this stuff that's happened to me is because God is punishing me, I think. You know what? That's the same thing they said. We read it. It's the exact same thing they said. Because we angered our God, he did this to us. But they confessed their sins. We, that's what we were reading. They were confessing their sins. And when they finished that temple, the first thing they did in it was celebrate the Passover, chapter 6 of Ezra. And, they, and the Passover is a feast and a celebration all about the forgiveness of God and bringing children home. You know, truly God doesn't punish his children. He disciplines them, and there is a subtle difference in English. Punishment is a price that gets exacted for what you did, and you have to pay for it. Discipline is something that's done to bring children home. And all God ever wants to do is to call you and to invite you, and yes, sometimes to drive you back into his love and his safety. You've already confessed your sins if you're saying this sort of thing. Now what you have to do is begin to rebuild a place of worship, to build in your heart a temple for God and his Holy Spirit to live in. 
Now you may be saying, I've been trying to do that. That's what I've been trying to do. It's not working. It might even be getting a little worse. Same thing that happened to them. Lay a foundation and get shut down for 25 years. You know, you have to give it time, everyone. You have to give what you're trying to do time. God is not on our calendar. They did not think it was going to take that long. It doesn't always turn out just the way we think. Remember, Zechariah was very excited that Zerubbabel might be the Messiah of Israel. He wasn't. Zerubbabel never became king. He built the temple, which was a wonderful thing, but then fades from history, and we don't know what happened to him after that. But the people of Israel kept the prophecies of Zechariah because he'd gotten a lot right. And all these signs that he was hinting about of what the coming king would be like, they just kept looking for those in other people. Kept looking for the Savior to come. And one of their favorites was Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout and triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. For 500 years, they looked for this sign and others like it. Until one day, Jesus, 500 years later, on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, rides up to Jerusalem on a donkey, on a donkey's colt. And they laid palm branches in the road in front of him, and all the people cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us. And they sang, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the king did come. Because the stain is not set and the die is not cast and the, is not engraved in stone and the train has not left the station and the leopard can very definitely change their spots because God's eye is on us. And that is what I wanted to tell you about Doritos, the book of Ezra, and the sovereignty of God. Didn't think I could put it all together, did you? Now let us celebrate as they celebrated the Passover. Now Jesus took the Passover and reinterpreted it in a way that he said you should do this as often as you get together. Because on that night of the Passover with his disciples, he took some bread and he broke it and he said, now this is my body broken for you. So if our servers want to come forward and break the bread, after Jesus did that, he took a cup. He said, now this cup it's my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you remember my death until I eat and drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. So some of you will come forward and tear off this bread and dip it in the cup for the thousandth time, remembering what Christ has done and also remembering what we now wait for and look forward to. The return of Christ, the establishing of his kingdom, the resurrection of the dead. Some of you will come forward and take this for the very first time. Or maybe the first time since you really have believed it. That this body of this king has come to show God love for you. 
and this cup poured out for your forgiveness, that God was only ever trying to call you home. So you tear off the bread and you dip it in the chalice, and when you take it into yourself, you take in the symbol of everything that he has done, and you proclaim your hope of everything that he has yet to do in your life and mine and in the world. Some of you will not yet feel comfortable to come forward and do this. You're still exploring. We said we love a faith that's fresh and new, and you may not be able to believe in Jesus the way I've described. So don't come forward and, and receive this. You wouldn't want to participate in a ritual for something you don't believe, but do think about it as you see people coming forward and ask, what would it be like for me to do that? to accept his body broken for me, his blood poured out for me, and that that is a sign that God wants me near him and will even give himself to make that happen. What would it mean for me to begin to walk a journey of faith? I do hope you'll all come tonight to the baptism and celebrate with uh, people who are proclaiming that journey at 7 o'clock. Watch the website. If the weather turns on us, we'll tell you what we're doing there. So, let us pray, and then we'll come forward and take part in this celebration just as they did at the building of the temple. Uh, come down the middle aisles, and then go down the side aisles if you would, and return, and we'll close in song together. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that your eye is always on us. We thank you that the stain is not set. It is not engraved in stone. The die is not cast. The train has not left the station. Lord, by your power, the leopard can change his spots. Thank you for your word today and for this body and blood. We pray in the name of the one who gave it, Jesus. Amen. Well, let us stand together and recite the Apostles' Creed, our faith in the coming King. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now receive the benediction. Having removed all stains, always and ever watching over you, may the Lord give you the power this week to smile. Go in peace.